I am one of those people who like, it takes me a while to want to get there. And I'm very conservative about how quickly I adopt that stuff in my code, just because I'm trying to get stuff done. You know, I don't want to spend my time like fiddling with syntax. I'll use it once it's like all figured out. I want to innovate in other areas. I don't want to innovate in how I syntactically represent my code. I want to like actually make a thing that's cool. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Move fast and fix things. Resolve errors in minutes and deploy with confidence. Head to Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Request a demo. Get started today. It's loved by developers, trusted by enterprises, and most of all, we use it here at Changelog. Move fast and fix things with Rollbar. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. People ask us this all the time. They say, hey, how can I support JS Party? Well, if you haven't written a raving five-star review on Apple Podcasts yet, that's one easy way to pitch in. It'll cost you 30 seconds-ish of your time, and believe it or not, those reviews really do make an impact. We appreciate you listening. We appreciate you supporting us. Hey, it's party time now. Yes, it's time once again for a JS party. Welcome, friends. Jared here, and I'm joined by two of my JS party panelists. First up, we have Nick Nisi in the house. What's up, Nick? Hoi hoi. And we're also joined by Faross. How are you doing, Faross? Doing great. Great, great. Well, as you may or may not know, we take listener requests around here, just like any good wedding DJ. And if you have requests for the show, of course, you can drop them into our Slack channel. Or you can tweet at us. There's lots of ways, but there's an official way at changelog.com slash request. Select JS Party in the drop down there. You can let us know if there's a specific guest you'd like us to have on. If there's a topic you'd like us to talk about, you can pick your panelists. We may or may not listen to your request, but you know you can throw in, hey, I really want to hear from Frost on this topic. We would love to hear from you. The reason why I throw all that out at the top is because this topic we're about to take up was one such listener request, Brian Vesti. And he wanted to know about how we evolve alongside the JavaScript syntax. Let me go ahead and read what Brian had to say, and we'll get right into it. Brian says, I noticed recently that there are a lot of people who see the new shiny and try to fit in all the holes. A good example of this is the traditional function syntax and arrow functions, and how a lot of people will try to use an arrow function for everything. Personally, I feel that arrow functions are best when you need an anonymous function or you need to keep the this keyword constant while passing it around. And the traditional syntax is nicer for top level functions. I think it would be nice to hear everyone's thoughts on the changing syntax and how it relates to older syntax for the same thing. So I agreed. I thought that was a good topic of conversation. I'd love to hear what you two think about changing syntax. I have my thoughts as well, but let's open up the floor. New syntax. Do you adopt it right away? Do you wait? Do you love it? Do you hate it? What do you guys think? Well, so I don't adopt it right away, personally. I'm pretty conservative when it comes to adopting new syntax, mainly because I personally prefer not having to require a build tool to process the code before my browser can understand it. So I'm pretty conservative with what new stuff I use. And one sort of rough metric for like when something is ready that I like to use is if ESLint can parse it out of the box. If my linter can understand it without having to do any kind of babble shenanigans, then I'm like, okay, I'll use this now. And um, usually by then it's in enough browsers that if you have an aggressive user base uh, who always keeps their, their browsers up to date, then it's fine to ship that out. And that's, that's my approach. But I'm pretty anti-compilation if possible. Mm. I'm a little weird like that. I'll say. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> say Nick wants all the compilation tools involved. Yeah. I, mean, I still wait a little while, but that's because I heavily rely on my compilation step to support the new syntax. And so I will start using something as soon as it's ready in the version of TypeScript that I'm running with. 
And I like that. I like TypeScript kind of being this quote unquote blessed version of the syntax that I can use and then mm. go from there. But yeah, I'm definitely <laughs> on the compilation train with that. Right. So I'm somewhere in the middle because I, I don't mind the tooling. I shouldn't say I like the tooling. I think any tooling you can get away with not having is nice. I don't mind the tooling. It's usually there or it takes some setup at first, but now it's there. So for many projects, there's that bootstrap moment, which I agree is nice to skip if you can. But for most projects, like it's already existing. And so you're just like slotting in something. That being said, I don't adopt the stuff just because it's there necessarily. Like, well, here's a new way of doing the same thing, especially syntactic sugar, which some of these things are. We'll talk about maybe some features that aren't just syntax. But I am somewhat curmudgeonly, or maybe the right word is habitual in the way I write my code. And so I'm not going to just change for change's sake. I'm going to change when I'm compelled to by some sort of new thing I can do or readability improvements. I think we'll get into some of that because I think readability can be, I mean, it is subjective. Each person reads it with their own eyes and they're the subject, right? So we'll get into some of that. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the history real quick because it seemed like the JavaScript syntax was static for so long. And then it's been changing what we feel is like somewhat dramatically or quickly, maybe just in comparison, not really all that fast anyways. So I did pull up a real quick document that Mozilla did in their reintroduction to JavaScript. So just a little bit of history on how it all kind of played out. The ECMAScript, which is the official term for JavaScript, uh, ES edition three was updated in 1999. And I think that's the one that we all probably knew for so long. Well, maybe it became five. Anyways, well, let's read this. So the fourth edition was abandoned due to political differences concerning language complexity. So that's kind of funny because <laughs> there's definitely political differences regarding language complexity with some of the newer features as well. I'm not sure what exactly the details were on ES4. Do either one of you know that history? Why it was abandoned? There's a lot of things that have resurrected Oh, really? Yeah, I'm failing to remember the specifics of what the big conflict was. Yeah, that'd be interesting to find out. I don't know what it is either. But anyways, ES4 never became a thing. Many parts of the fourth edition formed the basis for ECMAScript edition five, which was published in December of 2009. I just looked it up. So ES4 was going to have classes, module, like a module system, optional types, uh, generators, iterators, a whole bunch of stuff. That's in there now. But we're still figuring out. Yeah. Modules are kind of still figuring out. Well, some stuff is in there now. All the details of it now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pretty ambitious. Yeah. Maybe it was too big, too much. I'd be interested to go back and read some of those discussions. Like, why do they can it? There was also a JSX-style syntax called E4X that was proposed during ES4. Really? They were ahead of their time back then. <laughs> yep. Guess it was too soon. So then ES5 was published in December of 2009. Now here it's just talking about publishing, and I'm assuming it's the official spec. That does not mean browser support, but 09 was ES5. And then the sixth major edition of the standard was published in June of 2015. So this is where it got confusing for me. It's like ES6 was also ES2015. And so maybe you've heard those two terms. And Babel was once called, wasn't it called 6 to 5 before it was called Babel? So while it was published in June of 2015 and had a lot of the syntax that we use now, I'm sure there's new stuff beyond that that I'm not well aware of in 20, I don't know, wasn't that ES7, ES8? But we didn't have access to those functionality right away, which is why Babel became a thing, which goes back to Feroz and his tooling. It was called 6 to 5 because it was going to take your ES6 written code and transpile it into ES5 compatible code, which could then be executed in the browser. So there's a little bit of history. I don't know the modern history. Maybe you two know that. It's not written here. Where do we stand today? Like is ES6, is ES7 out? Is ES8 out? I'm totally ignorant. Yeah, they, they switched to a yearly cadence now, which is why they changed it from ES6 to ES2015, 2016, et cetera. Uh, but they're still kind of referred. Oh, so they retrofit that name. Yep. Gotcha. And so ES2020, I think, was just ratified. Well, that, they're going to ratify ES2021 probably this year. Is that right? And then that's what will be implemented next year. If we make it that far. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> this might be the last year, actually. 
<laughs> Anyways, so there's a little bit of the history, and uh, maybe the reason why it does feel like it's evolving somewhat fast is because they've switched to that yearly cadence. That being said, all these things are opt inable, which means they're opt outable. And so many of us decide not to uh, use certain things for certain reasons. So I was just curious about some of the details. So the big ones that Ryan mentioned, we have the function, the arrow functions. And I think this is pretty standard code today, is arrow functions. You see it splattered about. Mm -hmm. Are you all using arrow functions pervasively? Do you still use the function keyword? How do you go about that? I do still use the function keyword occasionally. There's one nice thing, and the post kind of references to that, but arrow functions are great when you need an anonymous function. And so I use them everywhere where I want, like a callback to like for each or map or anything like that. Uh, where I don't care about it, but then sometimes you do care about the name of the function. And specifically when you're debugging, you want to give the function a name so that you can reference it and see it in the debugger. That's one reason to maybe still name it, but yeah, otherwise I, I just kind of tend to use it pretty much everywhere. I, I was trying to think about this and like how I actually break down when I use function versus not function. And I guess if I'm just like putting a, a utility function at the top of a file, I will use function. And even though I don't really rely on hoisting, I know that it gets hoisted. I don't know. Maybe I should be more explicit with that and use. <laughs> well, you're pulling out an interesting point, which maybe Frost can expand on, which is this is not syntax sugar. These operate differently, right? Yeah, the two syntaxes are, are a little different, which is one thing that actually initially kind of bothered me about the arrow functions is that we were introducing like two types of functions now that work slightly differently. Mm -hmm. And that's actually one of the things I found when I was learning Ruby a long time ago. That was one of the things I found most confusing. They have like three different kinds of functions in Ruby. They have like, I forget the names. There's like, I'm going to embarrass myself, so I'm not going to try. But there's literally yeah. three different kinds. Lambdas, blocks, and procs. Okay, there we go. Yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah, and so now we have two in JavaScript. But fortunately, they're, you know, they're not that different. The way that the, this keyword works is different in the arrow functions. And then the normal function with the keyword function hoists, which means that you can actually define the function you know at the bottom of the file and then use it at the top of the file so it's sort of you can imagine like if people aren't familiar the way it, you can imagine it working is that you sort of wherever you have a function where you've written out function and then the name and then you've done that sort of syntax it sort of takes all those functions and moves them to the top of the file and so anywhere else afterwards you can sort of just use those that's one way to think about it and i kind of like that i like to write my code where when you open the file, the thing that I think as the writer that you should see first is at the top, not the thing that has to be defined first, like, like the utility functions and these random kind of helpers. I like to have it sort of inverted. And then so all the utilities are at the bottom. And uh, you can't really do that with arrow functions. So it's one downside. I, I actually have to say I struggle with knowing when to use each. I wish there was one way, one sort of magic, you know, do always do it this way. Um, and so I'm kind of tempted to just make arrow functions be that way because I very much prefer them when you're doing like a map operation or for each or any kind of inline situation. But then there's those few places where I really want the hoisting and then I'm, so I'm still using the function keyword and I wish I could just do, just use the one in all places and mm. keep it simple. Yeah. Yeah. I find myself using the arrow functions when I want the, this bound in that way. Like if this is the way I want the context for this bound, then I will use it that way. And I will use functions kind of like, what Nick said, top level things where it's just like, I'm giving this thing a name and I'm, it's just a function. I don't need it to be an arrow. It works just fine the other way. And maybe I'm just old school in that way. But so I, I tend to like default to the old syntax and then use the arrow syntax when I want that specific feature of an arrow syntax. Mm -hmm. I'm probably rare in that way. Probably the other way for most people. The other thing to know, too, is I think one of the benefits Nick was saying about the naming, I think if you name your arrow functions, like you assign them to a variable before you use them, the debugger can actually still show you the name. Yeah, I think that's pretty magical how they implemented that, because, I mean, I don't know if it has to be like a really simple assignment to a name instead of like assigning it to something like more complicated. But yeah, it can show the name. I noticed it doing that now. Yeah, so, so that's another argument for like maybe just go all in on arrow functions. And I've been doing a lot of React uh, stuff lately. And if you're using the arrow functions for like a bunch of different components, you can actually almost treat it kind of like there's hoisting going on. Like I can use a component 
that is defined later in the file in a component that's higher in the file, even if I'm using arrow functions, because I'm not really using it until the, that component is initialized. So it can actually reference it later, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like I have hoisting when I don't. So that even makes there even be fewer cases where I really, really need that function syntax. So I'm almost fully eliminated it from my code at this point. I like that. I didn't know about the debugger. And so that's, that's really cool. Do you remember when you were learning like this new syntax? Did it really feel foreign to you? Like the arrow syntax? Totally. I, I just remember watching Dan Abramov's Redux class, Egghead, I think, and like an arrow function that returns an arrow function and maybe even another level deep. And I was just like, what is going on here? I do not understand. Yeah. There's still some code that I read because there's so many optional aspects of that syntax, you know, like the mm -hmm. implicit return and you can drop the uh, parens if you want to and this kind of stuff where to the uninitiated and to somebody who writes JavaScript more casually, like I'm a JavaScript sprinkles front ender. So I write JavaScript all the time, but I'm not primarily writing JavaScript, if that makes any sense. When I revisit this thing or when I'm reading somebody else's code who has different level, like they'll use different levels of syntax or like it's still foreign to me. I'll have to like stop and it makes it less readable. Like I think if you're super initiated, it becomes more readable. But for the casual author, it's like, what's going on here? Because there's so much optionality in that syntax. Yeah, there's actually five, I think, different versions. When we were adding rules to standard JS for this, we were like, can we eliminate some of these? Because they seem kind of like there's just too many variants. Yeah. There's the zero argument version where you just have two parens that have to be there to indicate that like that's this is a function. When you only have one argument, you can omit the parens or you can keep them in. And then you have the multi-argument version where you, you have to have the parens again. I know, right? You go from like having them to like not needing them for one argument and then you need them again afterwards, which is unfortunate. But I have to say, I, I do like omitting them when there's only one argument because it looks prettier, but it's just more, more cases to know about. And then there's the version where you can omit the curly braces if it's just a single expression and you want to return that expression from the arrow function. But if you want multiple lines, then you have to include the curly braces, but then you have to add the return keyword because there's no more implicit return. So it's like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised beginners are confused by this. Yeah. But then if you want to return like an object literal, you have to wrap that in parentheses. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's that's right. Yeah, because otherwise it'll be interpreted as the braces of the function. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. That is true. Yeah, it's too many. I mean, I, I don't know. It is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah. I do take full advantage of being as lazy as possible and being a Vimmer where I'm trying to type as little as possible all the time. I will write the minimum amount and then I'll rely on a tool like Prettier or ESLint fixing to mm. write that the way that, that it should be. That, that's quote unquote more legible. See, but the reason why you're trying to write as little as possible is because you're using Vim and writing in Vim is hard. And so you're trying to reduce <laughs> the amount of writing you have to do. But I'm telling you, in other editors, you can just write all you want. It's fine. I would, but I'd be too busy moving my mouse around. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move our mouse around to a different subject, which is still on the evolving landscape of JavaScript, which is variables. So one thing that got much more complicated uh, in recent editions is in addition to var as a way of declaring variables, we now have let and we have const. And this has been a topic of many Stack Overflow questions. When do I use which one and why? And again, it's not syntax. It's the, these have significantly different meanings and different scopes, et cetera. But do you guys have rules of thumb about which keyword to pick when you're declaring a variable? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say, I can say what I do. So I just go const all the way. At first, it's funny because at first, when people were suggesting that we enforce const in standard, I said, I don't like the name const. I think it's misleading. It actually doesn't const an object. So if you have a const object, you can still change the object. You can go in there and change the properties. So you have to really understand what is actually being const, consted or made constant, which is the reference, the binding between the variable name and the particular object or primitive that you're referencing. And uh, once you understand that, then it actually is quite useful because you know, like 99% of my variables are const. And that makes the places where I'm using let stand out a lot. And it makes me go, oh, okay, this is going to be changing. Where is this going to change? If I accidentally try to change a const thing, I'm going to get warned. I don't know. It just, it feels safer to just use const everywhere. I really like how my code feels when I know that I'm just sort of explicitly allowing those, those references to change whenever it's required. And I like to use tooling to help me with that or like my, my linter. I mean, so 
if I'm ever using a variable and it doesn't change, that's going to force me to use const and tell me if, if I accidentally use let and vice versa. So if I'm using let and it notices it doesn't change, it's going to say, hey, go and make that const. That's my take. Yep. I 100% agree with you for us on that. And I'll go one step further in that with TypeScript, using const also narrows the type down. So if you're like setting like the string literal foo uh, and you use const, then that variable can only ever be the string literal foo. Whereas if I use let, then the type can only ever be a string, but not the exact explicit string literal foo. So there's a little bit more type safety that you get by using const over let whenever you can. If you use let, then the type has to be the same always. But if you use const, then you also get that it can't change. Is that it? So in TypeScript, like you can have string literals as types. So I can say that the string hello for us is a type and it's the type hello for us. And uh, if I set that as const, then that will be that. But if I use let, then it has to widen the type out a little bit. So it's that variable can be any string because you can change it later. Got it. Okay, cool. Well, let me descend here and throw my contrarian viewpoint into the ring. I use let. And the reason is simple. It's 40% more efficient than const. You only have three letters to type. <laughs> I've never been bit by a const versus a let. I don't even know what kind of bite that would feel like, but it's never been a problem. I use let and everything just works. That's fair. Yeah. I also agree that I haven't actually been saved very much by using const. Mostly it's, it's just how it feels. Yeah. <laughs> I totally agree with you. I get the point of like there's signaling that's very nuanced and contextual signaling. Like, you know, that that's a signal to you. Like when you see a let, you're like, oh, this signals to me that there's something else going on here. That would be a very nuanced and, and minute signal to anybody but yourself, unless you like explicitly write down, like, here's how I use constant let, and then I can read that and then I consume your code. But yeah. But that's more enforceable with TypeScript. What's TypeScript again? <laughs> the future. <laughs> we'll break right there. <laughs> I'm going to break it right before you said the future. <laughs> <laughs> See, the nice thing about being the editor of the show is I get the last word. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean provides worry-free database hosting with their managed databases. If you need to get data in and out of Postgres, MySQL, or Redis, call on the world-class support teams at DigitalOcean and stop wasting time on setup, backup, and maintenance. Get simple, predictable pricing. Get detailed documentation. Get up and running in minutes so you can get on with your business. What are you waiting for? Head to do.co slash changelog. Again, that's do.co slash changelog. So there's a lot of other goodies and newer versions of JavaScript. There's classes, there's template literals, there's default params and whatnot. What else do you guys want to talk about? What do you like? What do you not like? Not everybody at once. Yeah, I find myself using almost everything in ES6 now. Like uh, pretty much all of it is is good stuff. I, I don't think there's anything that like, you know, was a mistake to add. Uh, and that's in contrast to what I used to believe when I when back when I was writing ES5, I was like, why are you complicating my language? You know, I understand everything. Don't add more stuff. I kind of, I kind of liked the fact that the syntax was quite limited. Um, that's actually one of the reasons I really like C as a language actually, is that you can buy a, the, the Kernahan Ritchie book on C and it's like, you know, 50 pages. You can understand the entire language. Now, there's a lot of ways of like combining those features to do all kinds of crazy things when you're manipulating memory, you know, raw and you have pointers and all this kind of stuff, but it's all emergent based on a really simple set of rules, a simple set of possible things you can put into the syntax, you know, but then they came and started adding all this stuff to ES6 and I was like, no, now JavaScript is going to become this sort of thing where it's like C++ where you're going to have to like decide what subset of the language you use at your company or in, in your code base. And you're going to have to have like half the language is like off limits because that conflicts with these other features. And, and then you get this sort of 
situation potentially where a, a person can come into a code base and they're actually a JavaScripter, but then they look at this code and they're like, I don't know what's going on because you used a different part of the language than I've ever seen. That was my big fear. But I think I have to say, like, I do really think that what seems to have happened with this ES6 stuff and all the new syntax is that people actually have just sort of fully shifted over to the new stuff and we have left the old stuff behind. And it doesn't seem like we're in that situation where there's this, these two worlds as much as I had feared. So I'm a big fan of all the new stuff now, I have to say. I am one of those people who like, it takes me a while to want to get there. And I'm very conservative about how quickly I adopt that stuff in my code, just because I'm trying to get stuff done. You know, I don't want to spend my time like fiddling with syntax and like, I, I'll use it once it's like all figured out. And mm -hmm. I want to innovate in other areas. I don't want to innovate in how I like syntactically represent my code. I want to like actually make a thing that's cool, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, but I'm a fan now. So that exact reason is why I become more interested in and enjoyed languages that do not adopt the Tim Towdy, like there's more than one way to do it uh, mindset. Like I actually appreciate that there's a one way to do it mindset, um, such as languages like Go, like you're going to write it this way, and this is the way it always is. Because when there's six ways of doing the same thing, I'm just like de facto bike shedding, right? Like I'm just, or I guess this is more of a bike shed than a yak shape. I'm trying to decide what's my style, what's my way. I'm going to do it this way over here. I'm going to do it that way over here. And then yours clash with mine. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff that we're like thinking about. It's like the meta game of your coding. I don't really care about the meta game anymore. I used to care about it a lot more. Uh, as a younger person or as a less experienced dev, I'm not sure exactly what I attribute that to, but all these different ways, like the fact, like you just described the five different things you can do with the function, the arrow function, like the ways you can use it and the optionalities there, that infuriates me. I understand like it's a balance because that gives me more options and it makes it more, it can be more expressive, et cetera. It's sure nice to save those, you know, those characters and those strokes, but I don't know. I kind of like it when there's just one way to do it. Like var was the thing and you used var. If you didn't use var, you could bite yourself. But I'm still of the of the mindset that that's better. That being said, some of the new features I really like. So such as destructuring assignment, like that allows for new kinds of things. But when it's just like, you know, options for what seems like options sake or just like expression, expressibility, I used to appreciate that way more, which I was big into Ruby. Because you can express things in so many different ways. And I don't really appreciate that as much anymore because I really don't care. I actually like the languages that have the formatters, like Go Format or Elixir now has Mix Format. That's what a standard does, right? It's like, here, just spit out it the exact same way every time. And I'm done thinking about the way my code looks. But it's not just Timmy Todio for Timmy Todio's sake, it's to achieve their goal of being as backwards compatible as possible. I mean, like there have been features that have been added to the language that had to be renamed because they would clash with Mutools from 10 years ago. There's such a pervasive mindset and goal of we do not want to break the web, but we also don't want to be writing this archaic code anymore. So we need to add more features to the language. And from that perspective, it's pretty elegant the way that you can adopt these features, opt into them or out of them uh, at your will. Totally. Yeah, I don't think that people think that like, you know, there's a use case for var and let and const all in the same code base. Like var is just var just has like irreparable problems with how it works. And the idea was like, if we could do it again, we would do let and const, right? But we have to keep var there for the old code. It's not like there was an explicit desire to have all three, right? It's not like they want to give you more than one way to do it. It's just there is more than one way to do it just because of history. I think that's fair for the variable declarations. I don't think that applies to the arrow function syntax. That's all new. Yeah, I agree. I think the thing there is just that this is really confusing and hard to use with an anonymous function. You end up having to bind and call apply and people, that's confusing for people. For sure. I think the arrow functions were solving a real problem. Don't get me wrong. Mm, okay. It's the five different variants that you can have to mm. achieve the exact same output. Fair enough. Yeah. That's where I'm thinking why. But I'm going to bring us back to things we've already talked about. We can move on. Do you guys like destructuring assignment? I mean, I think it's pretty rad. Yeah. I use it all the time. I think that that fundamentally changed the way that a lot of us write JavaScript with specifically destructuring because like now it's pretty common to have uh, method signatures that 
accept quote unquote named parameters, right? Because you can just pass an object and then you can destructure them right in the argument assignment. And you can also technically have multiple return values where you might return a tuple or an object uh, named objects, and then you can just destructure those off and use whatever you need in there. So that's the biggest change that I see across all of the code is just destructuring everywhere for that. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's constant. It's used everywhere. Yeah. It's pervasive. Yep. Yeah. And I think it's objectively better than before. Like when you see it, you're like, yep, that's better than what I would have had to do previously to achieve the exact same goal. So yeah, destructuring is really cool. You mentioned, well, there's modules. <laughs> I'm going through a list of new of ES6. There's modules, but you, we could do entire shows. Have we done entire shows on modules? Many shows. And I have so many pet peeves with modules, but one that just came to mind since we were talking about destructuring is just the way that you have to say as in the yes. module uh, when you're importing something, import this as this. It's like, come on, like, why can't we reuse the knowledge that we gained from like learning how destructuring works in this other place? I don't know what the reason was for that, but it just seems like the left hand not talking to the right hand to me. I don't think there really is a good reason for that. Also, from a tooling perspective, I hate writing the import destructuring from whatever else because it's kind of backwards if you wanted to have autocompletion. Whereas in Python, I think it's like from this module import these things. And so then it knows what module to go autocomplete from, which is a little bit better. So one aspect that kind of is a metagame thing with regards to changing syntax or evolving language. Have you guys been a part of a project that has had to evolve over time? Like it, it was started in the DS5 days and it has some ES6 and there's some vars and some lets right next to each other. And there's old syntax and there's new syntax. Uh, have any of your personal projects done that? What's the iteration process? Do you like have a one fell swoop? I'm going to go change all my de variable declarations to this. Or do you slowly and when you're in a section, like, you know, s bring that one up to date? How do you guys handle the transition to new syntax? So uh, I can say what I did on the WebTorrent project. So we just uh, like kind of agreed as a project that we wanted to move to ES6 syntax. And we were using this tool called Libab. So it's just Babel backwards, L-E-B-A-B, -B, to convert ES5 code to ES6. And it's a little finicky. You have to kind of pass it all these flags saying like what you want it to convert. But once you decide like how you want that to happen, you can just sort of go to all your different files and sort of run that tool on the file with the same arguments that you figured out the first time. And then you can kind of, it, it's way better than doing it by hand in my experience. And it, it basically doesn't mess up. So that's been a really easy way to get everything up to speed. And the other thing that I do is that when a new version of standard mandates new syntax, then usually there's a fix automatic fix command that can go and also update everything to the new way. And so that's pretty helpful. That sort of forces the hand of the projects that are using standard to keep at least somewhat up to date. Standard is very conservative, by the way. It's not, it doesn't like force you to go all in. It is moving along, forcing people to eventually transition a little bit here and there when they can. Tell Nick what standard is, because when we played JS Danger, he didn't know what oh, standard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so disappointed. It's, it's fine. <laughs> I'm sorry. Are you serious? You want me to say it? Well, I'm, I know that Nick knows what it is, but you can say what standard yeah. is for the listeners who aren't, you know, who aren't aware of it. It's just a, it's an opinionated ESLint rule set, basically. Yeah. But it packages it up into a single command, so you don't even need to know you're using ESLint. You don't need to have an ESLint configuration file. You don't need to install the different ESLint configs and have the plugins and all the different things in your package JSON and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. You just literally install standard and then you run standard, that's a command. You run it in your test script section, and that's it. And it uh, forces your code to be a certain style, and it also checks for errors. So it does more than just format the code. It kind of also detects likely errors and forces you to fix those. Yeah, so a lot of people are using Prettier now, though, because they mostly wanted the code formatting, not the error finding, it seems. So Prettier is like a way to forcefully format all your code. And there's a lot of people who prefer that to like standards approach, which is kind of more minimally, like it tells you when it's wrong, but right. it, it, it doesn't go and change code that it doesn't have a problem with, where it's pretty well forcefully like reformat. Everything. Yeah, exactly. The last couple of projects I've been on have had both actually. Oh, interesting. Really? Which has been interesting because, you know, ESLint can do a lot of fixing, auto fixing for you as well. And 
it's always hazy in my mind where the the line is drawn between mm-hmm. what you rely on and then you can have conflicting rules for each one as well mm-hmm. so then they're fighting back and forth and it's that's interesting yeah. i know this is a tangent but just quickly i have a plan to sort of have a version of standard that's just the, the error finding then the people who are using prettier could actually add in a version of standard that is actually just purely additive yeah that's just finding errors the main version of standard could become basically a formatter like prettier with its own opinionated way of formatting, but then with the, the the added error checking on top. So you could basically pick and choose. Do I want the formatting? Do I want the error checking? Do I want both? Yeah. Anyway, back to syntax. What were we saying? Uh, <laughs> we were talking well, about, oh yeah, how to update, how to update code bases. Yeah. Transitions. Yeah. The other thing I haven't done yet is like switching an API, like really fully, like, like a big code base switching to like promises instead of callbacks or something like that. But I have just done, I have done the syntax thing and that's nice because it, you really don't, it doesn't really introduce a breaking change right with the exception of one thing by the way if you're ever doing this remember that classes when you switch from function style uh, like prototype making your classes using es5 to switching Mm -hmm. to the class syntax you're forced to use the new keyword when you're initializing the class and previously a lot of code that was written in the es5 style would do this thing where like in the constructor it checks to see did you call this without new if so we'll call new for you so that Mm -hmm. you don't have to as a user, have to know whether you're new or not not new. With classes, it's all new, and you can't you can't not use new. It's all new. Nick, do you have a, a similar transitions? Uh, run some tools against it, or slowly spruce things up as you go. I definitely have done both in my experience, and it's kind of like depends on the team, depends on the project. Some places I'll just like slowly evolve functions as I refactor or as I add functionality. Like oh, this you know sometimes you pick file by file. And say, I'm going to upgrade this file to this. I know years ago when I was big on CoffeeScript, it's funny that I'm a bit of a curmudgeon on new syntax because I hopped on the CoffeeScript train like immediately. There That's so why many, you're a curmudgeon. Probably because I did that <laughs> and then I felt the pain later. But I remember that I had a, I, I didn't rewrite things in CoffeeScript, but I wrote things in CoffeeScript for the first time. And then when all these features started getting added, I was like, I don't need CoffeeScript anymore. And so I slowly switched back to ES6. And I had to do it file by file just because of the file extensions and stuff. So that was fine. And it was a pretty easy, there's tooling for that as well. But Nick, what's your experience? Yeah, I've done both as well. If, if it's a smaller project, I would like to just do it manually and quickly do it. Uh, starting off by renaming everything to that TS and then uh, <laughs> going from there. <laughs> Sorry, I keep becoming that guy. But if it's a little bit bigger than relying on tools to do it, or code mods, or even writing your own code mods to do it, uh, to do pieces of it is, is a good way to do that and to also learn about the AST. The AST, powerful thing. So back to features real quick, and we'll wrap up this part of the conversation, but I think another huge boon to JavaScript developers all around the world is template strings. I can't see any reason why, you, why you'd be like, these things stink. Like constructing a string the old school way with pluses in between the string literals was uh, was terrible. And now you can just inject variables you know, right in there. And, and I just think like that's an unadulterated win. Is there any reason why that somebody would not like this feature? I mean, it's three, now you have three ways of making strings before you had two. It's the same thing as the other argument. Dang it, that was my argument. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, on a different topic, not on this one. Right, right, yeah, exactly. You're a hypocrite, basically. Totally. That's all right. I'm a hypocrite with taste. I mean, some people say you should go all in on the template string syntax because then you can basically just use the one way in all your in all places. And then you might need to fall back to using like single quote strings if you really needed a dollar sign brace in your string. Right. That argument is I'm sympathetic to because then you can just have like the one string syntax. I keep coming back to standard because that's like my personal preference is like encoded in that. But I like to do single quotes everywhere. And then when you see the template strings, you know there's a variable substitution going on and it's more signaling to the reader about the fact that there's going to be a substitution. So I still think the two types of strings is a reasonable trade-off. I think that's a stronger indicator than your let versus const one. I will agree with you on that one. I think if you're, there's a reason to use both. And one says some strings have data interjected into them and some do not. And here is a way of immediately knowing this is a different kind of thing. Unless you're using it for multi-line. Dang it. Yeah. It's complicated. That's the other way too. <laughs> yeah. 
I now disagree with myself. <laughs> I, I don't like that though, because like, you know, often if I'm putting a string somewhere, I might be like several lines indented in my file and then I have to like move everything all the way back over to the left side mm. to not have just extra spaces in there. Well, that's just bad code factory, man. You can't be that far indented. If you're that deep into an indent, then you've got some bad structure in your code right there. <laughs> Even just one line indented, right? One tab indented. Oh, um, just one? Yeah. That, I, that's still like adding tabs to everything or spaces. Yeah, I'm a spaces guy myself, but you can do what you're going to do. <laughs> Have you all used uh, common tags? Do you know what that is? No. No. Oh, okay. It's super cool. If you like template strings and you are annoyed by like the problem Nick just mentioned where you want to have a multi-line string but you're annoyed that like you're going to be indented and that is going to have you're going to have all these extra spaces in the string if you use common tags common dash tags on npm they have these little helpers that you can use to remove those spaces in a, a nice way so you don't have to you just write your code uh -huh. the normal way and then it will fix it for you but it uses the feature of template strings where you can kind of what is it called tagged templates there you go I was actually going to mention that as something that I never used personally. Same. Yeah, <laughs> but, I've only used it with this use case here. It's basically you're calling a function and passing in a string. Now, I know there's yeah. certain things you can't do without, unless they, they added this feature, like the like when you want to do like escaping, um, HTML safe escaping and stuff like that, then it is, is actually important that they, that they have this language support for tag templates. But for like a lot of use cases, like the one I just mentioned, the removing the spaces, you could just do that with a function call around the string but they do it with tag templates. But it's cool, it has, it has like a way of sort of like, you could say strip the indent out of it, or you can say like, turn it all into one line um, and remove all spaces. Or you could say leave at least one space. Like when I hit enter, go to a new line, I really actually want that to turn into a single space. And it supports all the things you would ever want for multi-line strings, different ways of removing the spacing, basically. This is super helpful. Yeah. Anything else on this topic before we call it a segment? Just curious if there's anything that you're explicitly not using. Mm. TypeScript. <laughs> 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 Sorry, Nick, but you, you set them up and I knock them down over here. It's my job. <laughs> I haven't used generators very much. Uh, I haven't really needed to for most of the things I do. I don't know. Yeah, that's the same for me. Uh, generators and symbols outside of like an example of what a symbol is. I haven't used it before. I think that might be might be the two main ones. Yeah, actually, I think symbols are kind of a bad idea. Yeah. I know that there's a use case for if you really want to make stuff private and have people. Symbol is basically a string that you can't type unless you have a reference to the symbol, if that makes sense. It's like, it's a way to make like a private property. The thing that annoys me about this feature is that JavaScript has always been very open and very flexible. And I don't like the idea of somebody like saying that I can't access the thing. I'm also against private properties and classes for the same reason. It's like, I don't want to be limited from shooting myself in the foot if I really want to, you know? Yeah. That's one of the things that made JavaScript a good language for so long was even without a lot of support in the language directly for doing things the right way, people could hack in like the fixes to the language. And that's what we did for all the years before JavaScript got these good features is like we would fix problems with the language. Now they're like saying, you know, well, you know, we should be able to make things that are not fixable by the user, not hackable. And I don't like that, what that trend signifies for the future of the language. Yeah. In terms of the symbols, it seems like most of the symbols that might be used by the language or like by features in the language are, are well known so you can access them. But yeah, I totally agree with, with that and, and privates at runtime. So you just don't appreciate what the symbols feature symbolizes? <laughs> oh, I killed the segment. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back. Changelog News is the best way to keep up with the ever-changing world of software. We track, log, and contextualize the coolest projects, the best practices, and the biggest stories each and every week. Make changelog.com your daily destination or hit the snooze button and subscribe to our weekly newsletter that hits inboxes on Sunday mornings. Join more than 15,000 enthusiastic readers. It'll cost you exactly $0 and you can subscribe right now at changelog.com weekly.
these are interesting times we're living in. Maybe we shouldn't call them exciting times. It's tough to be excited about lots of things right now, but we can be and we can distract ourselves. And we're going to talk about some stuff that we're excited about. This segment is called I'm Excited by X, where X is literally anything. And for us, you've been hard at work building a new app here during the pandemic that you seem to be excited about. Do you want to tell us about Virus Cafe? Sure. So I built an app called Virus Cafe. Uh, by the way, the TLDs these days are crazy. So that's virus.cafe. Uh, <laughs> that's a nice one. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of people think it's a, it's a, it's a virus site or it's malware or something actually when I'm posting the link. So I might end up renaming it, but for now yeah. you can access it at virus.cafe. I like the .cafe TLD, but I do have take pause with the name. We can get back to that. Tell us what it is. Yeah. It's a site that lets you meet people and you can do a two minute video chat with a stranger. So you're matched with a random stranger and you have two minutes to discuss a deep question and the site will actually prompt you with a question so you don't have to find a topic to talk about with the person it sort of helps you cut through the small talk so there's no small talk you just sort of jump right into this question and um, you talk for two minutes and then if you like the conversation and you want to keep talking then you can click extend at the end and uh, you can extend for another two minutes and then you can keep doing that for as long as you want but if you don't want to talk to the person after two minutes, then uh, there's no pressure to continue because the call just ends automatically at the end of two minutes. So there's no awkward kind of finding an excuse to say goodbye. It just defaults to ending, which is kind of cool. And um, some of the questions that are on the site are like, when in your life have you been the happiest? Or what would you be willing to die for? Or um, what's a belief you had as a child that you no longer have? Or um, what absolutely excites you right now? Mm -hmm. Or what's the biggest lie you've told without getting caught? Uh, and then there's some fun ones in there, like weird out there questions. Like if a family member murdered someone, would you report them to the police? Uh, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's sort of um, a nice variety of fun topics to discuss. And yeah, I, I launched it last week. So it's like seven days ago. And the reception has been pretty good so far. It's um, it got 30,000 users in the first two days and way more than I expected. And then there was a bunch of good conversations I had on there. You know, like I was expecting to have to ban a bunch of people for like exposing themselves mm -hmm. on the app. And so far, only one person has done that. Uh, <laughs> so there has been one person, but they're banned and uh, banned, you know, within like a second. And we have reporting. How do you know that happened? Were they reported? Yeah, so there's a reporting function and there's also a moderator dashboard where basically the photo from user's camera is sent like periodically to the server, just a still photo, uh, like a grainy kind of still photo so that I can sort of just spot if there's somebody who's like naked or something like that. That was kind of the idea why I built that. So far, I said, like I said, I haven't really had to use it. And there's also reporting. So the way the reporting works is if you're reported at a certain rate, sort of like Basically, if you get reported twice within the first like 15 minutes of joining, you're just you're insta banned. Yeah. So even if there's no active moderation, you're just going to get kicked off. But the active moderation is like also my plan to kind of keep the site top quality, even though it's open to anyone, basically. So it's a typical trade off, you know, yeah. like I want to keep it open. I don't want to force people to have an account. I want it to be anonymous, but I also want it to be welcoming. Exactly. It's so interesting, like just the UI kind of UX stuff that comes into these social apps like a lot of social apps are really, if you think about them, like they're just feeds of photos. Like if you think about Instagram, right? It's just a feed of photos. There's hundreds or thousands of these kinds of apps. Mm -hmm. But what differentiates them is like these really subtle social cues, like things in the UI that make you or encourage you to behave a certain way in this app, which gives that app kind of its own culture, right? Think about the difference between Tumblr and Facebook. They're kind of the same. You can post images, photos, links, videos, but they feel so different. Why is that, right? I'm now like gaining a huge appreciation for these kinds of subtle things just because of the the way I've had to like think about how to nudge people to behave the way I want them to behave on the app. It's been really interesting. Did you try it? I did, but I chickened out and as soon as it connected, <laughs> I, I closed it. <laughs> so I was telling Faraz in our JS Party chat room that I'm afraid to click the tap to start button. And you asked me why, but I didn't, I didn't respond at the time because I was doing something else. It's just anxiety about not knowing what to expect. So it does say, here's how it works. You're, mm. you know, step one, you're matched with a random partner. Step two, you're given a deep question to discuss. Step three, you have two minutes to discuss it. 
but I don't know exactly what happens when tap to start. Like when I click tap, when I tap start, am I just dropped in? Like what's going to happen when I click this button? <laughs> am I dropped in immediately? Do I know the question before? Do I get a chance to think about that question? So I have something to say in two minutes, you know? So there's just a lot of like, it's just like, right. what's behind door number one? It's like, I don't know if I want to know what's behind door number one, <laughs> even though once I get there, I'm sure it'd be a very enjoyable experience. So I'll tell you, like, it, I agree. There's been some feedback that like people click the button and they're just dropped into this chat and they're like a little bit confused or like uh, didn't expect that to happen. Yeah. So I'm going to work on like sort of explaining a little bit hand holding. what's going yeah. on. Hand holding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for the people who did click the button. They had a great time. There are some users, yeah, there, there's some users who've been, I kid you not, on the app for 12 hours since I launched it. Like, I, I have the, the tracking. It's like 12 hours of talking to people in the last, like, two or three days is a huge number of hours. So I think there's some kind of unmet social need right now mm -hmm. for people who are lonely, who, like, haven't talked to anyone in a long time. Maybe they're living alone in an apartment or something like that. And I just did not expect that kind of a response. So that's it's, awesome. it's been really interesting. Yeah. So you can extend beyond the two minutes if it's if you're enjoying yourself, right? Is it not going to cut you off? It doesn't cut you off. You can extend as long as you want. And so some of these people, I'm sure, have been extending for like 30 minutes, you know, repeatedly pushing that button to stay connected. Right. And that's uh, it's, it's kind of wild. I think I should probably add some kind of like exponential thing where like extends ex the time ex to extend keeps increasing over time, like four minutes, eight minutes, so on. But yeah, right now it's every two, every two minutes. Gotcha. Yeah. The wildest conversation I had, by the way, with somebody was really wild. So I can repeat it because I don't know who she was. But first of all, the one really interesting behavior is people blocking their cameras. That's been really interesting to see. I think what they're saying is they want an audio mode. So I'm actually building an audio only mode right mm -hmm. now. But at first, my original instinct was these people are blocking their camera because they're trying to be sketchy and I should ban them or I should like they should get reported. And but then I, I started using the app a little bit and talked to some of these people. And some of them had been on the app for several hours and they had not been reported even once. So they're behaving perfectly well. They're great users, but they just don't want to show their face. And I learned that and I'm like, okay, so actually there's a real reason here. And then I actually realized that I felt more comfortable when I, try, I tried blocking my own camera and using the app for a little bit. And I, and I felt more comfortable sharing stuff because I, I just felt more like I was on, on an anonymous like right. phone con confessional line or something like that. And it felt more freeing to be able to do right. that. So this, this one lady told me, this one woman, she said, do you know Procter & Gamble, the home products company? Right. And I said, oh, yeah. First of all, the question was, what is the biggest lie you've ever told? Okay. She said, do you know Procter & Gamble? I said, yes. She said, uh, well, I had a job interview there recently, and I lied on every single question that they asked me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, okay, okay, that's interesting. So did you get the job? She said, yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> Are you going to take the job? And she said, yeah, as soon as the coronavirus thing ends, they're going to formally like, you know, ask me and I'm going to accept it. And I was like, first of all, that, that's terrible that you did that. Right. But how did you also just admit that to me, to a random stranger on the internet? Like, how, she felt very open to do that, yeah. right? And, and then I felt all this pressure to say something like that I had done that was really bad like oh. that. And I couldn't think of anything. <laughs> but, you should have been like, well, you're a like, bad person. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's just so interesting that that she felt comfortable to share that. You know, somebody else admitted to me that they they, they like spent a night in jail. There's all these people like saying this really interesting stuff, huh. um, and they feel really comfortable because their their camera's blocked and it's just their voice. So it's I don't know. It's been really fascinating to me to to have these conversations with people. That is cool. So I want you to tell real quick about the tech stack. But first, let's talk about Virus Cafe. Where did you come up with that name? I'm assuming it's referring to the COVID nineteen scenario that we're in but when i hear a virus cafe it's like you want to go hang out in a virus cafe i'm just like no no i don't <laughs> just don't want to go there <laughs> i agree yeah the, the name probably needs to change i wanted to have a name that was sort of making clear the purpose of the site is to connect people during coronavirus right. times that was the purpose of the name so it's an awesome domain so tell us a little bit about the tech because you got a lot of you got some web rtc or you got some web torrent there's p2p of course it's for us what do you expect it's not going to run <laughs> two servers. So it's a pretty simple text or standard tech stack, actually. So I tried really hard not to like reinvent everything like I like to do because I wanted to just make the app and focus on like what the users are going to see. And I'm so glad I did that because, you know, I've gotten 
so into the weeds before when doing projects. And I have to say, it's been really freeing to just accept the fact that I'm not going to fully 100% like all the tech I'm using, but that's okay because I'm like focusing on the bigger picture of what I'm trying to build. So that's been really good for me. So I use Next.js, forces you to use React. I've been using Hooks in React and I'm using Chakra UI for the UI components. And I love Chakra, by the way, it's amazing, really high quality components. We did a whole episode on Chakra with right. uh, Sagoon. Um, what's, I don't know the episode number, but that's a really good episode. Recent episode, just scroll back a little bit, you'll see it. Yeah, really recent. And then I guess the other interesting pieces are, of course it's using WebRTC, which is how you do video and voice calling in the browser. And the library I'm using for that is called SimplePeer. And that's the same library that is used in WebTorrent. And it's a library that sort of makes WebRTC a little bit easier to use because it is a gargantuanly complicated API if you just use the standard one out of the box. And I think that's pretty much the most interesting stuff. There's WebSocket server involved for doing the signaling between the peers to get the peers connected. But then once you're actually fully connected, it's a peer-to-peer -peer connection. So your browser is connected to their browser. And then there's also a relay server, which is really important if you're building a WebRTC app. Because if your peers can't directly connect to each other over peer-to-peer -peer connection, which happens sometimes if you're on a really like restrictive network, like in a corporation where they have a firewall and it blocks, you know, random people from connecting into the network, then um, you need to have what's called a, a turn server or a relay server, which can help facilitate those two users connecting to each other. And the way that works is that they both just connect to the server and then they, they send their traffic through the server and it's encrypted, but the server helps basically that traffic get sort of tunneled between the two peers, if that makes sense. I set up a server for that. You just install a thing called Coturn and then it, it does that for you. But yeah, that's pretty much the stack. Awesome. Open source or no? No, not yet. Ooh, breaking with your brand here for us. Yeah, yeah, I know. We'll see. I kind of want to just keep the optionality of me turning this into something that's more than just uh, an open source project yeah. for a little while. We'll see. Fair enough. Sounds cool. Virus.cafe, I'm sure if Faraz has renamed it by the time you hear this, it will redirect to the new place. That's right, yeah. And Nick, what are you excited about? Oh, man. Well, uh, I'm going to go with a non-tech pick here. Starting a new job and just, you know, really focused on that, but also looking for an escape for my attention away from, from tech for a while as well during this time. And I found this book series called The Ark of a Scythe. And the first book is called Scythe. And it's uh, a pretty, pretty interesting book about a benevolent AI that runs the entire world and has eliminated death. And if you die, they can just bring you back. And so because of that, to prevent overpopulation, there's now this order of a scythe where they randomly select people to kill and they kill them. Oh. And it's the, the politics around that. The AI cannot be involved in that at all. Like it's one of its rules and uh, it's, it's just interesting. Uh, and I'm ready for an AI to start running our world. So <laughs> when that comes along, a benevolent AI. Oh yes. Is. The problem with the AIs is we have to put our biases into them. <laughs> right. Why do you like the series? What's your favorite thing about it? I'm a big fan of like futuristic, post-apocalyptic, or just like into the future uh, books involving like tech in this way or AI. And uh, a friend told me about it, told me it was really good. And you basically read the first book to understand what the sides are. You read the second book to understand the intentions of the Thunderhead, which the Thunderhead is what the AI is called. And the second book is called Thunderhead. And then the third book is like how it all comes together, which is pretty cool. It's just interesting to me, like the, I don't know, the story that goes along with that, the way that they, not necessarily the way they use technology or the, or anything like that, but the way that they understand death and the way that it, like their life without death is kind of meaningless in a lot of ways. So it's, I don't know, it's interesting. Very cool. Well, I'm excited for the very first time about a coding font. Well, maybe just the second time. So uh, thing about things we like to bike shed or change often is our fonts and our themes and our editors. In fact, an unpopular opinion of mine is that we do too much of that. And so I haven't changed my font for years. Yeah. Um, I've been using Ubuntu <laughs> Mono pretty much since it came out. I just like that font. Before that, I think I was using Monaco or something that was built into TextMate back in the day. And Ubuntu Mono has been out for about a decade now, and I liked Ubuntu Mono, and so I just have used it for a decade. 
and I'm very familiar with it. That being said, there is a new font that I recently found. We just did an interview with Nikita Prokopov on the changelog. It's not out yet. It's coming out soon. It's a maintainer spotlight with him. He has been maintaining Fira Code, which is a really cool monospace programming font that supports ligatures. And ligatures, for the uninitiated, are when there are specific glyphs in your language, such as the arrow function in JavaScript, and you're used to writing these things with a combination of ASCII characters, like the equal sign and the greater than. Fonts with ligatures actually have specific glyphs that represent that combination of ASCII characters. And so uh, Mono is one of those. And so you'll be typing along and you'll type your equals then and your, your equal sign, your greater than sign or whatever happens to be the ligature supported in the language that you're currently editing in. And it will replace those two characters with like a custom character. Um, interesting. I've never coded with a font like this before. So I told Nikita I would try it for a week. So I officially switched my editor. I guess it was last Friday and now it's we're recording on a Thursday. So it's been six days. I've been coding with this turned on and it's pretty cool. Like I was very reserved in thinking I wasn't going to like it. I was going to have to report back to him that, uh, that it's a no go, but I'm not sure. I think I'll let it fly for a little bit longer. One thing that happens with fonts, at least for me is like, there's an immediate backlash to just what you're used to and then seeing a new font and you either like love it. And you're like, this is amazing. And you're like, Oh, go right back to where, where you were before. And I've just been on Ubuntu Mono for so many years that I just had never found a font that I that I gave a chance long enough to like it, I think. And I probably wouldn't have given this one a chance because I'm stuck in my ways. But uh, I told him I would, and I'm using it for about six days now. And I'm a pretty big fan. I think the ligatures, I think there's something to that. So check it out, Fira Code. Have either of you two come across this font yet? I have. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Uh, I just have a question. So how, how does it work when you combine the two the two things together? Doesn't that change the width of the character? Is it gonna like be the same width as like say you combine an equals and an equals to be like special yeah. long double equals? Does it take up two characters? Yeah, spaces? so they make sure that like nothing shifts, you know, inside. At least in in all of the okay. ligatures that I've come across so far. So I think the longer you use it, you're exposed to different ones. Like the greater than or equal to symbol is kind of strange, but as you type it, in fact, you'll like do the greater than, then you'll do the equals, and you can see them kind of combine right there in your editor, but they don't shift. They're still monospaced. So they either take up the one or the two or the three, depending on how many it's combining. It's pretty seamless. And for those who are curious, it doesn't actually change anything. It's just a presentation layer thing. So like in your code, it's still going to be equals, equals, equals if you're doing the triple equals. It's just that the way that your editor and it supports all the major editors, represents that font. You install like a system font. So uh, the way that the editor represents it is it like just presents you that new glyph, but in reality, it's still the ASCII characters underneath. Mm -hmm. One thing I will say as a warning about ligature fonts is if you live in the terminal and you specifically use like uh, iTerm2, for example, enabling ligature support in that will um, disable the metal render, so the GPU uh, rendering of iTerm2. Oh, really? And it is noticeably slower. So wow. um, be careful with that. I actually do use ligatures, though, and I use a different terminal emulator called Kitty that very much supports ligatures in a very fast way. So that's the warning. If you're using iTerm2 and want ligatures, maybe look at something else. Yeah, I haven't gone so far as installing it anywhere or like switching my terminal over to that font. I just left that one alone. I've only done it inside VS Code so far, but that would be the next natural step if I still like this in a couple of weeks is to start, you know, matriculating it across my entire yeah. system. Is terminal.app have the same problem, do you know? Or is it an iTerm2 thing? That is a good question. I don't, I don't actually know. No. I'll have to test it and follow But you're up. using it in VS Code, so you're used to it in a slow environment. So. <laughs> Shots taken. <laughs> Does this do anything with the, like, does it make, like, cursive letters in the code? Because I really don't like that. No, it doesn't. Okay, good. I don't like that either. In the comments, were like, italicized. Yeah. yeah. 
Not a huge fan of that myself. I spent hours getting that to work in Vim. You spent hours <laughs> trying to get that to work? <laughs> yeah, I had to like do, um, oh, I can't remember the name of it. I had to run a tick command to like enable a, a term info, a specific term info file that would support cursive in italics. And it's, I don't use it anymore, but I spent a long time doing that. Case in point, you've made my case for my unpopular opinion from a few <laughs> weeks back. All right, those are the things that we are excited about. What are you excited about? What are you using in the new JavaScript syntax? What do you not like? We would love to hear from you. We are on Twitter at JSMartyFM. You can, of course, comment right on changelog.com. Pop open your show notes, click the discuss button. All three of us will be notified of what you have to say. We'd love to hear from the listeners. If you've been hanging out in the Slack chat, we appreciate you, all live listeners. And that's JS Party for this week. We'll talk to you next time. JS Danger makes its return at OpenJS World on June 23rd. This time we have Cassidy Williams, Prosper Odomayua, and Tiffany Lee Nguyen putting their web dev skills to the test. We're not turning this one into a podcast because we wanted to use more visuals and we don't want to turn this feed into a JS Danger Zone. See what I did there? We'll post the video to YouTube, so subscribe there if you're interested. That's youtube.com slash changelog. Special thanks to our awesome sponsors for making these shows sustainable. Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar, you rock. Thanks to BMC for the beats. And of course, thank you for putting us in your ear holes. Next up, we have Feroz's Web Security School. We'll talk to you then, same time next week. I'm going to try this fear code thing. Yeah. It's a nice font. I'm really curious. It's not the only ligatures font out there. It's just the one that, you know, that we met the guy who makes it. So what font are you using? Are you using ligatures and some other font, Nick? Yeah, I'm trying JetBrains Mono right now. JetBrains Mono. But I've tried a couple of different Do you switch ones. your font all the time, Nick? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might. <laughs> I just, I install them from Homebrew Cask and it's just so easy to to switch things around. Fair enough. I didn't know you can install fonts through Homebrew Cask. Oh yeah. That's rad. Including Fira. Really? For Fira. Yep. Oh, I just saw that in the readme. Yeah, okay. I'm That's beautiful. I didn't know that. I just like clicked the download button and then I like opened the zip file and then I right clicked on the TTFs and I said install in font book. It was terrible. <laughs>